welcome to Carrots and Suffering, a D&D Odyssey. Thank you, listeners, for your likes and reviews. We work for your compliments and are thrilled to share our story with you. We don't advertise this show or have advertisers or make any money. This, this is just for fun. So if you could spread the word and tell a friend, that'd be great. Speaking of friends, I'd like to thank Todd Ferguson of My Pet Machine on Facebook for his stellar work on the music. It's really become a staple for us. Todd has a new album out on mypetmachine.bandcamp.com, and we highly recommend supporting artists in 2020. We are still processing episodes, but we're very shortly going to conclude book one or season one. We've talked it over, and we aren't going to skip time or anything to start book two, so it'll have a weird start, but people were just too invested in the story to not roleplay it out. Okay, let's get into it. Last time on Carrots and Suffering. Sylpha packed up and recruited her cat Skrix to head out of town and stay in the country estate of House Lunari, and Skrix alerted Sylpha that something far more interesting than being an enemy of the Fairy Queen was going down. I don't know what you're talking about, but on the Hot Gossip Network, (laughs) there's a, a tremendous number of powerful objects being pulled together nearby, and all the spirits of power are interested. It's going to be a fascinating moment. I don't know who did it, but oh boy, it's going to be fun. We should take a detour and go see it. (laughs) Yes, we should totally take a quote-unquote detour Detour. and go see it. Jalen got caught up on the gossip from Vanessa Lunari, Silva's mom. You know, it's not my place to gossip, but... (laughs) Jalen gives her a look with a capital side eye. (laughs) But just between you and me and this wall here, Well, your friend Sable just got ousted from her house. Uh, What? Yes, she's no longer the Baroness. Sable survives the weirdest assassination attempt ever by a supposed Archdruid holding equipment to reincarnate someone. Archdruid Wu immediately disappeared. And, And called to him Master Wu. Master Wu kind of spins around and he says, Sable! What are you doing? I was coming to meet you at the tree. I... But I guess this will have to do. I see what you're carrying. What's your plan? I'm afraid it'll take too long to explain it and Yennefer will find out. And then he goes to cast a spell. Roll initiative. God damn it. Sylpha arrives at the estate first and gets everyone settled into their rooms. Sable and Jalen come along right after. There is an enormous three-story manor house made of stone surrounded by a kind of low stone-cut fence. And it's overlooking orchards of fruit trees. There's some buildings in the distance that are for storage. The house itself is probably about 150 years old. And when it was constructed, I imagine it was quite scandalous. Like, oh, the BFs have let the nouveau riche build upon our land. And what's next, public schools? What's becoming of the kingdom? Other notes again, phrenemic is a friend-based code language our heroes invented to talk to each other when they were younger. I wanted to send a message for Yennefer as we were heading out of town. Okay. Take care with Master Wu. I'll send more details soon. Watch the thorns. And then I'll sign it, and I'll send it by messenger. And then we're heading out to the Lunari Estate. Okay, so the Lunari Estate is on the edge of Miev's land. So you head basically towards Miev's. I'm going to roll me a dice. Oh, shit. Come on, Nate. <laughs> All right. 
You hit the intersection and turn further north, heading towards the Lunari Estate. You arrive at the announcing bell at the edge of the property next to the orchard. It is getting late. It's starting to get dark. There are still people moving about in the orchards, but you can no longer make them out. You ring the bell. There's another bell, and you can proceed up the drive when you get to the top. Gina Lunari is there. You've met her in the distant past. She's a hugely muscled lady. Does she have antenna, Julie? I imagined her as being kind of short and stocky and muscular and very square-jawed with, yes, tiny antenna. Little tiny antenna coming out of her hair. Gina says, you're here. You're... She kind of snaps her fingers. Uh, Jalen? Yes, ma'am. And uh, you're... Oh, you're the carpenter who thinks she's a baroness. (laughs) Welcome to the Lunari Estate. I just... I give her a little nod. Come on in. Thank you. And she takes you back to a dining room ballroom. So in a in a big noble's house, usually these would be separate rooms, but in House Lunari, they're a little smaller. The dining room is kind of a massive place with multiple tables, and the tables are all being set and food is being set out on them. And there is a very large muscled guy with blonde hair and basically wearing a, a Hans's mom's bakery Kiss apron. The cook. <laughs> and he, he doesn't have any visible mutations, but he is ugly. Mm. Ugly, ugly. Face a mother could love. Only. <laughs> mm-hmm. And running around with him are uh, three or four little helpers that are setting the table and setting out food. And Gina says, dinner's like, um, Hans, when's dinner? Hans says, like, almost done. And she's like, okay, well, get washed up and come back here, I guess. I'm going to go ring the dinner bell. I I don't know where to go, so I'll stand there awkwardly. Silpha, I think, is presently distracted and milling about trying to be a good hostess to our noble company. She would make some introductions, formal introductions, between her family and the Masons that she thinks they would get along with. So, of course, she shows off Byron to... Melise and Gina and will say something to the effect of like, oh, this is this is my friend Byron Mason. He has quite a good head for business. Aunt Gina, we were having a conversation about business contracts and I was telling him that you are the reason I know so much about building contracts. So we will have, for ease of simplicity, as Gina's leaving the dining room, that's when you bump into him with Byron. Also, I really want to introduce Annabelle Mason, the pug of children, (laughs) to Aunt Melise and Aunt Gina, who will absolutely- They'll fawn over Annabelle. Fawn over Annabelle, and what a marvelous child she is. As Gina's leaving the dining room, there's an uproar as you can hear people chattering, and you you hear just outside the dining hall, like, uh, Silpha's voice, and you know she's right over there. Silpha, the conversation goes about how you'd expect, honestly. Byron is the perfect gentleman, and Melise loves to talk business, and Gina likes people with trade skills. So that conversation goes really well, and then your aunts sort of sweep this piggy child up and head off into another part of the house, leaving you with Sable and Jalen. Oh, you're here already? Yeah. I expected you to come much later. You said you had business to attend to at your houses? Yeah. I I think my business is concluded at the house for good. I can't go home. Uh, uh, Silpha is like flabbergasted and she's like 
it's only been a couple of hours. What could have happened? Exactly. <laughs> she like wants to, to talk to you and it is just like frustrated by the fact that, look, I really want to know what's going on, but I also have duties here. Let's make time to talk. I, I understand and appreciate that. If you could just direct me to whomever I should talk to in the household about potentially arranging uh, some time to stay. Sable, you're you're absolutely welcome. Just a moment, and she will run off and fetch her cousin Cora. Oh, God. You find cousin Cora has come in from the orchards. She is wearing kind of a dirty pair of coveralls, which are way too big for her because she is a slender snake-like lady. She is holding like a big basket of apples and says, Uh, Silva, what, what's going on? Cora, I had promised I would bring Sable by the house sometime, and she's going to be staying with us. I have things to attend to, but I, I wondered, I'm, I'm sorry, I wondered if you might entertain her for a while. Show her the grounds. Show her, you know, she had a really rough week. I think that she would appreciate that place you call your, your thinking spot. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you think I should wash up first? Uh, you're fine. She gets a very snake-like smile and proceeds to kind of almost skip past you with her basket of apples. <laughs> so Cora, a coral snake patterned woman in kind of orchard overalls carrying a giant basket of apples, kind of walks into the dining room, sets the basket down on the table, and one of Hans's men grabs it and takes it back to the kitchen. And she says, I'm Cora. Nice to meet you. And she extends her hand to Sable. Uh, Sable looks, thank goodness, mostly covered up, so her eyes go wide, but you can't see the blush. She'll just, she'll quietly say, I, I, I know. Hi. Hi. Good to see you again. Hey, let me show you around. And she looks at Jalen and says, um, and I'm sorry, I don't... I'm, I'm Jalen. Jalen. Jalen, would you like to come along? Yeah, yeah, I would. Well, I, well, maybe... <laughs> you get the look from, from Sable that's like, the look of terror that is like, don't leave me alone, please. <laughs> you know, honestly, I, it's been a little bit of a rough day. Is there a room I could just chill in for a little while? Or I Absolutely. Come this way. And she glides up a couple set of steps and goes down to a set of guest rooms that look like sort of servants' quarters area. Like the, the good guest rooms have royalty in them. Mm-hmm. And she says, well, we're running out of space pretty quickly. Uh, anyway, this one's for you, Jalen. And she pulls the door open, and it's a little better than your sewer apartment. <laughs> I imagine with the number of people, there are lots of rooms with bunk beds in House Lunare somehow. Yeah, yeah. Mm. True, yes. That's fair. There's like four different bunks in this room. And she says, I mean, you know, you and Sable could probably share this one. Okay, great. Thank you. And uh, she says, now, Sable, for your tour, come on. And she, like, grabs your arm. <laughs> I start kind of instinctively because and, and check just to make sure that I'm covered. You are. And she's. I'm guessing she's dragging me along before I get to do anything but look, right? I mean, I assume you're, you're probably stunned. Yes. So, yeah, you're getting pulled down the hallway. Okay. I, I, am, I, will, I, I will stumble and follow along. 
um, not knowing what else to do. So you get the whirlwind tour. So she walks you down to the end of the orchard. Um, everywhere you move in the orchard, the sound of bees mm-hmm. is constant. Even as it gets dark, you can hear them. Mm-hmm. There are hives all over around the edges of the orchard. Like under every tree, there's a set of sort of hive boxes. And she kind of walks you through and talks you through them and steps up at one point and kind of like pulls out some honeycomb to show you how it works and Sable is completely fascinated with all of this. Like, she's going to ask them about uh, how do they know what kind of flowers to plant for the bees and, you know, things along those lines. She's definitely going to ask questions. This is this is her world. She is a lot more comfortable. So it gets to be less of a whirlwind tour in that regard. Yeah. I guess you get stuck in the orchard for probably the time left to get to dinner. As you're leaving the orchard, she gestures to a small glade. There's like a few trees that form kind of a windbreak off to the side. Mm-hmm. And they're not necessarily fruit trees they're like old pines and she says that's my meditation spot but i'll have to show you that another time we need to get back for dinner all right thanks for the tour this is yeah anytime hey you know if you're up early i don't have to do anything for at least an hour after sunup do you have any plants that you need to grow quickly everything follows a pretty tight schedule here so no no work needed but um i'd love to show you the meditation glade do you, do you have morning meditations? I do. That would probably be helpful. Thank you. Great. And she'll kind of pull you up the hill by your hand. <laughs> okay. I, again, awkwardly follow, just having no idea what to do. When you get to the, the dining room, she kind of just pulls a chair out for you and says, here, sit next to me. Okay. Jalen, you get about an hour to yourself. Well, I think she probably, because she brought a lot of, I mean, she brought stuff with her. So she probably unpacks some of that, spends a little bit of time sharpening her knives, and then gets up and starts walking around the estate. Things that describe this estate, it is incredibly busy all the time. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of people here. So, And there there were a lot of people here before the guests arrived. So one of the things that is interesting about this is you've been in several noble estates. You've followed Lord Evans to pretty much all of them. You've seen them all. This house is not quite as big as most of them. The property is not nearly as big as most of them. But the sheer number of servants and workers here is probably double. Mm, mm-hmm. In Fenrir, everybody has a job and they don't really stop and cater to people here. She's not expecting them to. She's more just observing. In fact, she would love it if she wasn't noticed right now. Uh, you have no problem here. Okay. Think of a normal house, even in House Evans, like someone would have stopped to see if you mm-hmm. need help or try to get you comfortable or position. That is not what happens here. Everybody has a job to do and they go do it. Yeah, I think I think that's probably how she spends her hours, sort of getting a feel for the vibe of the place. And it's a little bit like casing the joint, but she's not planning to rob it. She just it's just sort of something she does when she gets somewhere is sort of where's all the entrances and exits? Who's going where when? And, you know, what are the relationships I'm seeing? If I needed to rob this place, how would I do it? (laughs) I mean, she's sort of mapping the place out in her head. She's, you know, going to figure out what's where so she never has to ask anybody. Okay. Eventually, you'll notice that everybody, servants included, are piling into the dining room. She will go with the flow. In a typical noble house, the servants eat in an entirely separate part of the house, and there's one table with lots of space down it. At the Lunari family estate, there is a servant's table but like you can't tell who's supposed to sit where everybody is eating at the same time the this place is 
is packed. This is like packed cafeteria level dining. Most people have some kind of animal mutation here. Like the Lunari are not as as hands off on the work as anybody else. So most of them have more mutations than the typical royal house. And the servants have several more as well. But it doesn't seem to be an issue. You can pick the Lunaris out. Yeah, I would I would say that the predominant trait of anyone with Lunari blood is bizarre oversized eyes in inhuman colors, oftentimes. So it's it's the eyes which are the primary feature that are strange, and then oftentimes other insect mutations from there. And you can pick out the thorns cutters who do come in last because they are heavily mutated, but they also are eating kind of at the far end of this really large dining room. And the masons pile in and they sit at a kind of their own table, and the Miev piles in with her people, and they kind of sit with them. Gina and Melise come in and take a seat. Hanzo and Vanessa, Silpha's parents, actually show up, and they sit. Basically, the the people who we all know and love as part of our story are kind of piled into the three tables on one end, and then there's just a mass of people filling this the rest of this dining hall. And then in walks Hans, your your catering expert, and little servant folks are running around setting down silvered plates and setting out the main courses. Then they all kind of like pull the tops off at once, revealing this beautiful spread. Hans, for his part, strikes a Captain Morgan pose (laughs) in the middle of the room with a a sword across his back. He looks very knightly almost, uh, and he says, Mom's finest recipes for all of you. And then he takes like a little bow and walks out. <laughs> okay. And you can hear Hanzo from across the room, Silpha's dad, say, Catering is the best. <laughs> he comes highly recommended from Thalia. Here they have like a collaborative brownie recipe or something. <laughs> <laughs> and people just start eating. Like there, there's not really formalities or multiple courses. They just dive in. I think Jalen's probably going to sit on Sable's other side from Cora. If there's room. Would have saved seats, yes. Sable, there's a hand on your knee. <laughs> you don't think it's Jalen. Oh, God. <laughs> wrong knee. <laughs> so two things are wrong here. Number one, she's sitting at a table with everybody. That's not something that she's used to. She usually dines by herself because her touching the food is not a good thing. And somebody is touching her. People are going to assume she she's used to being served and therefore doesn't want to touch it. Yeah, she's just frozen, basically. I'm going to roll perception to see if Jalen notices her, her discomfort. <laughs> it's a it's a busy room, so DC's probably 12. Nine. Oh. J- Jalen's just piling her plate, oblivious. Jalen's got her own shit going on in her head. She, she's a little distracted. Cora doesn't notice immediately either, so you, you sit in awkward silence for, for a few minutes while she piles her plate, starts eating, and then she looks over and goes, are you not hungry, Sable? Sh- Sable kind of shifts... In her chair, I don't know if it, she's she's clearly like kind of trying to like not necessarily wiggle the hand away, but, you know, unseat it if it's like accidental. Cora has a tremendous yeah. grip, <laughs> by the way. Like, you know, she's, she's a working lady. She's, she's giving her the opportunity to go like, hey, your hand's on my leg in case you weren't noticing, but clearly. That seems to be purposeful, yeah. Oh, God. So Sable will say, I... At the Varathia Tate, I wasn't allowed to put food on my own plate. It would be dangerous for others. And she says, ooh, I, oh, I, you know what? I know exactly what you mean. And she plucks a, like a grape off of her plate and says, here you go, sweetie. Oh. And she 
She goes to feed you grapes from her oh, plate one at God. a time. I'm hungry, but she's like, no, I mean, I can feed myself. I just... All right, now, now we're going to see if Jalen notice, notices the overt flirting going on. <laughs> I just seem to, like, collapse and just give up and take the grape. Okay, with a 12 perception, do I now know what's going on? Yeah, I think you can tell what's going on now. Jalen's going to turn the other way and strike up a conversation with whoever's on her other side. I'm going to try desperately to, like, see if Cora will just, like, give me, like, bread and vegetables and cheese and stuff uh, off of my plate. Yeah, she'll fill your plate up. So you, Jalen, turn to your left and strike up a conversation with a extremely jumpy woman. She has huge eyes and just a ton of energy. And she's just shoveling food into her mouth at an alarming rate of speed. She she talks way too fast. And around mouthfuls. Yeah. But uh, you find out that this is Katie. Katie is a messenger. She's really fast. Mm -hmm. She wants to be a bard. She's learning how to play a couple of instruments. She likes stringed instruments the best. Jalen will just chat with her. I mean, because it's easier to do that than stay in her own headspace right now. So Sure, Katie's very distracting. She will let herself be distracted. Let her do most of the talking. All right. As things wind down, Hans brings out plates for dessert. They're actually like a big display of little like tiny cupcakey things and starts passing them out. And there's a quiet moment while people are getting sort of dessert and coffee. You imagine this is not a typical... It's not an everyday thing. Catering is for special events. So Sable and Jalen will uh, watch Silpha rise and go to the front of the room near the Lady Miev and her Aunt Melise and Aunt Gina. And she looks really nervous, but she's trying to like gather herself and notice she curtsies to her aunts, clears her throat and says, um, if I could beg everyone's attention. I mean, the whole room doesn't stop because it's a big room. It's full of a lot of people and a lot of them don't know you. But the three tables where all of the kind of important folks are sitting definitely stop and turn. They all have little cups of coffee in their hand. Sofa will basically stand up to deliver a formal toast welcoming all the guests. And she clears her throat. And it is the motto of our family that together nothing is beyond reach. In the spirit of togetherness and community, we welcome you all to share our home. For the ordeals you have suffered, we suffer alongside you, and we're reminded that during difficult times we must lift each other up, for prosperity finds us when good fortunes are shared. Though the world before us seems full of upheaval and uncertainty, I believe that we can persevere. It is at this time I would like to share an aspiration for a better future and to ask for help in making it a reality. And she kind of, like, looks to the people in charge being her, her parents and her, her aunts, for, like, permission to continue. Your Aunt Melise nods and kind of leans in like she she's expecting a business pitch now. This is her element. She's actually kind of excited. Your dad sort of flashes you a thumbs up, but that was the only gesture you were ever... That was the only reaction you were ever expecting out of him. Your mother gives you a very curious look, and then your Aunt Gina kind of relaxes a little bit and is mild, seems has this mildly amused look on her face. Silva basically <laughs> unfolds a, a folio with fucking map and charts and graphs. <laughs> uh, that gets Byron's attention. <laughs> You're not doing a good job of, like, dissuading him of his crush on you, but he's so invested in this conversation now. So she continues. According to my research, four generations ago, the kingdom of Fenrir had ten times the usable land holdings as it does presently. 
In addition to larger landholdings, prior to the rise of the Thorns, the value of the average royal estate in terms of productivity was 140 times what it is now. To translate that into practically understandable terms, for every gold that a person is fortunate enough to find in their pocket, they could have 140. When we calculate the value of wealth at this present time compared to its value immediately before the rise of the thorns, we see an estimated loss of worth equal to approximately 99.3%. House Mason had quarries. They constructed some of the most impressive, finest edifices in history. This family had a trade empire that stretched across the realm by sea and land, dealing in every manner of luxury. And no one, absolutely no one, had to suffer the burden of cutting thorns or the agony of watching their loved ones become transformed into beasts. I want that world back. Immediate reactions around the room. Lord Mason sits back in his chair a little bit, and you, you gather the Masons would normally be very dismissive of an argument like this, but since their house was just destroyed and they're hiding as refugees with the Nouveau Riche, they seem to be a little bit more receptive than normal. Your mother quirks a smile and leans in a little bit. Your dad gives you another thumbs up. Aunt Gina and Aunt Melise remain somewhat skeptical on their face. Jalen is like sitting back with her eyebrows have like shot up to her hairline. So Sylpha continues on. I dream of a world that is limitless in opportunity, not just for myself, but for all of us and for our children. And she looks really exhausted. And she says, I am so very tired of living in such a small world, which excluding present company, is populated by so many small-minded people with small ideas and small ambitions who would like to limit the rest of us just so that they may retain their power over whatever hedge they've decided to piss on to claim as theirs. Because if no one else is willing to say it, I will. This kingdom is merely a hedge compared to what it once was and what it could be if we would only all work together to change it. You're starting to get a little seditious here. Lady Mason's smile is like ear to ear. Of course. She's ready to reclaim what was. Gina and Melise remain fairly nonplussed. Your your dad is still a full supporter all the way. Your mother's getting kind of excited, actually. Lord Mason, as you get animated, he he gets more and more sort of like dismissed. Byron is is reading your charts. So please continue. I have studied transmutation magic because it is fundamentally about the power of change, and change is what we need. But in order to bring about that change, what I need is an investment in our future. When you say investment, everybody leans in. She addresses her aunts directly. I am in need of a component for the completion of a project. I require the wedding necklace that is part of my dowry. I know it's no small thing for which to ask, but... In compensation, I offer to forfeit the rest of my dowry for the reforging of a new one to be passed through the family. You can gift the new one into Cora's possession. Oof. Okay. Now I need a persuasion roll. You have advantage because you're well prepared. I got a 17. The room kind of leans in, and you seem to have won over all of them. But your Aunt Gina and your mother are the ones who still seem to be holding out. And your mother leans in and says... Sweetheart, I know the Masons were going to waive your dowry and that this would be a much more feasible thing, but they've backed out now, darling. This is, um, you might need that to get married. Mother, I am certain that there exists a person who would be willing to marry me for my value as a person rather than the value of any material wealth I possess. 
Furthermore, I've decided that that is the only kind of person with whom I would be interested in partnering, and I am confident that my skills are enough to regenerate any wealth I have given up. I can transmute mundane materials into silver. I don't see a lot of people walking around with that skill set. Give me a couple years, I can point at a pile of sticks and stones and snap, you have a house. I intend to profit off of that. Your Aunt Gina and your Aunt Melise lean in, and Aunt Gina says, You're asking for a component, not coins. That means you're crafting something. Do you care to enlighten me as to its purpose? Its purpose is to make possible what we have been told for so many generations is not possible. Miev will chime in and say, I can vouch that it is a purpose with which we will reclaim some of what we have lost. Gina kind of leans in and says, You know, necklaces are just wastes of money and space. I say we turn it into something useful. Melise kind of leans back and says, Hmm, you're asking me to trust you that you're going to create something for a better future that will turn a profit at some future point, and in exchange, you will make yourself slightly less marketable for the marriage contracts that are available. Melise and Vanessa like look at each other, and then they kind of lean over their plates and start whispering into each other's ears a little bit. And then Gina says, This investment is acceptable. We are willing to make it on three conditions. Condition one, the necklace must be reforged. Any delays in that will not be tolerated. Understood? I understand. Condition two, the prospects that are interested in marrying you must continue to be entertained. At the mention of marriage, I think that the Masons are going to get a tiny display of how irate Sylpha gets <laughs> over this whole marriage issue whenever it comes up. I think she gets a little indignant. I don't understand why it is so urgent that I should should marry. Is Did a fairy put a curse on me that I would turn into an ogre or a hag or something if I'm not married by 19? What? If, if someone were smart, they would be patient and wait. In two more years, I'll have even more value because the more time I spend in study and practice, the less time I am distracted by family responsibilities, the more powerful magics I am capable of. Roll me insight, please. And while you're rolling, at some point in all of this, I'm going to leave the room briefly to cast Detect Magic and come back. Because I'm even though people have told us that fairies can't come out here, I don't believe it. And I'm very afraid that one of them is going to hear this and bring it back to the queen. We will get to it. Just a second. So how'd your insight work out? Uh, it's only a nine plus three. Twelve. Okay, yeah. The room gets a little bit quiet. You don't know why. And Melise says, the third option is that it will become very important for me to protect my investment. And as I understand it, my investment is you. So I would ask that you stay on this estate and not head back to your town home until the necklace is reforged. She crosses her arms. I suppose this is agreeable. Very well. She she looks over at Gina and says, would you mind, dear? And Gina says, I'll go get it, and stands up and walks out. I think another point Selfa wanted to make is she was basically like, I carry so much value in my skill set. Someone should fucking pay to marry me. <laughs> I would also like to do possibly an investigation or maybe an insight role. Jalen is going to try to read the room. Yeah, read the room for me, because I'm oblivious. Because Silpha has just spouted a lot of sedition, and she wants to look for signs of anybody who might go spread that word to the wrong people. 
14. 14. Unfortunately, you're dealing with the most practiced court negotiators in the kingdom, except for Hanzo Lunari, who is super supportive up until Silpha mentions fairy curses, and then he looks really concerned. He does not seem to recover from his concern. Wait, when she talks about like fairy curses <laughs> turning her into her, her into a hag if she doesn't get married oh, no. at th- that point? Yes. <laughs> Okay, Hanzo. <laughs> Sable, you step back in. There is probably a little bit of magic coming off of Silpha. There is definitely magic coming off of Miev. There is a little bit of magic coming off of Cora. A little bit of magic coming off of Denmother Carolina. And the rest of the room is devoid of magic, and there are no unaccounted for sources of magic floating around like there are when there are pixies okay. in the room. Okay, then the only other thing that I wanted to do is, you know, when the room went really quiet for a second, I wanted to see if I could, you know, have a have a thought about, I mean, why did they go all quiet at that particular moment? I guess that would be insight, wouldn't it? Be insightful, someone, please. <laughs> How about a 24? You know that Silpha is definitely going to become a hack. <laughs> With a 24... There is some kind of fairy relationship that this room is hiding. Mm. Now, the Masons aren't aware of it. You can tell that they are very anxious about fairies, and they did not like that they were mentioned, but they don't seem to have anything deeper there. But all of the Lunaris of power are definitely hiding something. Yeah, so I haven't sat back down with the Detect Magic, and after the room goes quiet, I will definitely like be standing with arms crossed, looking a bit tense so gina comes back in conversation is resumed this this place is at full volume again as folks are eating dessert and drinking coffee and gina comes back in and puts in your hand a necklace what does it look like julie this is a necklace that only comes out to be worn for like very special occasions weddings and um it's like a vestige of the lunari family's bygone days of their trading empire so it has this um the centerpiece is it's, it's like a piece of costume jewelry almost that's pretty flashy it consists of like a silver crescent again echoing the crest on the the door of the house inscribed with this family motto together nothing is beyond reach and it's bordered on each side with pearls and coin-like medallions that each depict a different insect representing the Lunari family values. So if anyone asks, Silpha would excitedly explain like, oh yes, so the bee is for industry and ingenuity, and the butterfly is for decorum and diplomacy. The ant is for foresight and fortitude, and of course my favorite, the moth, is uh, persistence and aspiration. Hi, this is Mandy, here with your mid-roll animal facts. Today we'll talk about cicadas, or katydids. Cicadas belong to the insect order Orthoptera, along with grasshoppers and crickets. There are about 6,400 species worldwide concentrated in the tropics. In North America, most cicadas belong to the Tetagonidae family, with about 255 known species. Appearances vary widely by species, but in general a cicada is taller than it is wide, with long hind legs. They are green to camouflage with foliage, and during their daytime rest they adopt a diurnal posture to more resemble leaves on a plant. Their antennae are covered in sensory receptors to help them navigate in the dark as they are nocturnal. 
Cicadas tend to have large wings but are actually poor flyers. Mostly they flap the wings spasmodically when leaping. Pink katydids make a rare appearance, perhaps 1 in 500. It is a recessive trait known as erythrism, and it is similar to albinism in other animals. The pink color does not help the cicada camouflage like its compatriots, and therefore it is not a good survival trait. Cicadas are most famous for their sounds, and indeed are more often heard than seen, unlike repressed Victorian children. The name Katie Dig comes from a sound that true cicadas make, described as Katie did, Katie didn't. Males are the most vocal to attract females, though some species feature male-female duets. The sound is created via stridulation or friction by rubbing a scraper against a file on their front wings. Cicadas typically sound off in the late night to early morning hours. Periodical cicadas are a species well known for their intense emergence every 17 years, though some broods will emerge every 13 years instead. There are actually hundreds of broods, and usually there is an emergence every year. Brood V is the one that gets the most media attention, despite being just a medium-sized brood. Periodical cicadas are the longest-living insects on Earth, spending most of their life cycle underground. The nymphs emerge in large numbers on their given year, shed their subterranean skins, and grow hardened adult shells. They spend four to six weeks engaging in their reproductive cycle, during which the males congregate into chorus centers to attract females. The sound is a deafening din that can reach 100 decibels at its height. After mating, the females lay their eggs inside stems and twigs, and then the short adult life cycle is over. When the nymphs hatch, they drop to the earth and burrow in to begin the next 13 to 17 year life cycle. I have few regrets about leaving Texas, but one of the things I will admit that I miss are the katydids in the summertime. When the volume of the room kicks up again, Jalen will look around for Sable because she notices she got up and left, and she will stand up and join her. Cora notices and gets up and comes with you. And she, she phrenemics trouble. I shrug, like, I don't know. And for the first time, Sable is definitely much more comfortable than she has been through all of this. When Cora comes up, she says, Cora, I thank you for the tour. Thank you for the food. Thank you for the time. I need some time with Silpha and Jalen. Can you excuse us? Absolutely. You're actively turning around when she leans in and gives you a kiss on the covered cheek and disappears down the hallway. I, I start. I just kind of shake my head like I have no idea what to do with that. And I was like, can we get Silpha? <laughs> Jalen's going to be like, she's sort of the center of attention at the moment. We might wait a minute. Well, we can just tell her that we want to talk to her and then go back and find her in the room later. We don't. Ha it doesn't have to be now, but soon. I think we're going to like sweep in like we're looking at the necklace. And Jalen will get close to Silpha's ear and be like, come see us when you can. And then I guess we'll head out. So with the necklace handed over, the adults sort of go back to chatting. There's Byron will come up and congratulate you for a well-done speech. He asks to take a closer look at your numbers. Checks her math. Because <laughs> that's how he foreplays. <laughs> Man, you carried that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your your father disappears pretty quickly. Like, leave, leaves the room. Vanessa's actually looking rather proud and is discussing with Gina basically how uh, how charismatic you are. Poised, practiced, talented. The servants are just eating and the caterers are cleaning up plates. Dinner is winding down. Silpha will turn to the Lady Miev and give her the box that normally holds the necklace and be like, Do you mind if I, I wore it for like an hour? I I really have always wanted to wear it. Miev says, wear it, 
Wear it until tomorrow at noon, and then I'll need you to wear it for a reason. But we've cleared out a shed, and uh, tomorrow at noon I'd like you to be there. So Silpha will put on this necklace and just enjoy it, and enjoy her accomplishment for a moment. And then, because the adults have turned their attention back to chatting, she will just dash out to find her friends. Okay, uh, you can find them in, in their guest room. Sitting on a bunk bed. <laughs> so yeah, as soon as she walks in, I'm going to stand up and go, Silpha, that was amazing. That was impressive. How long have you been working on that? Thank you. Since I learned that we needed a necklace, I thought that I might just obtain it by marrying someone and then it would be my property. But, um, well, you always have to plan for things not going as planned. And in front of the whole house, that's... Yeah, Silpha, was that wise? Jalen, I had to do it that way. I, I thought of talking to them privately, but I needed them to back me up. I, I understand, but there was a lot of sedition in that rousing speech, and uh, I, I don't know your family very well, but... I know my audience, and it was tailored to them. You did a great job. Your dad, Silpha, look, I don't know if it's anything. I mean, I'm feeling a pretty pretty out, out of my element here, but when you sarcastically mentioned a fairy curse about you turning into a hag if you didn't get married, he got a look on his face, and I don't know what that means, but it didn't go away again after you finished saying that. Oh yeah, Silva, they're definitely hiding something from you. There's a fairy relationship that that whole family is hiding. I don't know what it is, but it, it was clear in their response. And Jalen's nodding. It's like, I, I don't know if we're smelling a rat, Silpha, but there's there's something going on. Well, it's like you've said before, it seems like power in this realm is always in some way or another in relationship to the fairies. And I don't think this is any different. Silpha gets a kind of drawn, a little more deflated look and says, well, there are family stories, but I don't know they usually relate to fairies directly i i mean my family has some pretty crazy stories i'm sitting on the bunk bed at this point i sit back down and my arms are crossed i think jaylen is sort of leaning against the wall with her arms crossed like she's she is definitely not relaxed enough to sit down right now well i can endeavor to find out i i think that would be a good idea deserve to know the truth well what are the stories share that well one of the reasons my merchant family has so many books on wizarding and resources is that it's rumored that, um, well, every few generations or so, someone who has natural ability from birth to just channel and use magic, a sorcerer, is born. It, it hasn't happened in generations to my knowledge, but it's, it's usually bad. Just because, you know, well, children are unpredictable anyways. Can you imagine a child with, <laughs> well, stories like the girl who turned her mother into a potted plant, the five-year-old boy who burnt down the nursery when he was just playing with his brother, the other kid who at the age of five sprouted a blue beard. Are you just reading the wild magic table? <laughs> <It's> wild. <laughs> <laughs> anyways. Stories like that. And so a sorcerer requires a very 
specially trained kind of governess and tutor. And, I mean, training me in wizardry was kind of a, a fail-safe. And, I mean, there, there are other fantastic stories of relatives of mine who traveled to far-flung places, found artifacts of great value, met strange creatures, and who knows? Okay, well... Whatever's going on seems to have something to do with you getting married, Silpha. Um, it seems like it has something to do with you. Sable's gotten this real far away look. She's kind of like looking in the corner and not really paying much attention. I just don't think our visit here is going to be any less interesting than the rest of the last couple of weeks. But now isn't the time to discuss it. There's You had a great success tonight. I want you to be very happy about that. And I don't want to muddy that. We're so close. We have everything we need and just an hour of work and, and she gets a huge smile again. We're so close. This is everything we've worked for. This is part of the fulfillment of Muriel's work and it, it means so much. And, and now we're so close to that moment. I'm sure the challenges before us aren't over, but I really do believe what I said back there. I know you do. I know. I believe it too. I would just be careful about proclaiming it far and wide and loud just yet. I'm not, and that's why I didn't tell anyone explicitly what we are doing. That's why I had to have the Lady Mia there to support my claim. That's why I tried to speak in the most general terms. Look, I'll, I'll talk to my father. My father wouldn't hide any truth from me. Okay, so I'm a free agent now, which is great. I don't have to worry about my house anymore. And... That gives us a lot of freedom, uh, freedom that I didn't think I would have. And with that freedom, if you don't mind, friends, I'm just going to, I'm going to take a walk. I haven't actually, like, just had a walk for a while. Enjoy. Did, did Cora show you the meditation spot? Yeah. <laughs> you sent her, didn't you? Uh, she's going to show it to me in the morning. Yeah, I'll, I'll be back. Half an hour. Is it safe outside to, to walk? I, I think so. A moment. And she will pull out from her bag what Thalia gave her. I stopped in at Thalia's today. You could carry one of these with you, and she gives you an iron horseshoe. Oh, okay. Oh, thank you. And then I'm gonna leave today, but I have something very deli- I just fucking lied to them. I am not going for a walk. <laughs> Once she leaves, Jalen will say, well, I was hoping to get to tell both of you this at once and not have to tell this twice. Yeah, what happened with Sable and what happened with you? Silpha. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't honestly expect you here, Jalen, for like a, a full day. You were pretty adamant about it. I didn't think I would be here for a full day either. I went home and found out what one of the conditions of one of Kylan's deals is. Silpha was so stupid. She'll put a hand on your, on your, on your shoulder. Uh, I... She pulls you into a hug, like, come on, you can, you can cry, I'm not watching. Bring it in. Um, I just wanted to talk to him. I, I had really good news to tell him, and I, I left him a letter, but this news, I can't, I can't just leave in a letter to him. I'd have to, I, uh. I could send a coded letter, I. Yeah, maybe that would be a good way to do it. I think we need to get word to Leslie, too. I think word will have a way of reaching Leslie. Your sister is the cleverest person in the kingdom. But maybe we should send her word that we maybe she could come out here and maybe we could talk to her. And maybe she should know that, if possible, we would really like not anybody to know where we are. 
We don't know who else has fairy enemies of the fairy queen deals going. I, I don't know who else to trust. I understand. I don't even know that we should trust her, but I'm feeling a little thin on options. Agreed. So, um, yeah, let's let's do that. Let's send a letter to Leslie and maybe a coded letter to Kylan, if you're willing to do that. Of course. Jalen is going to sit down for a while, and she's going to write for a while. And then when she's done, she's going to say, okay, this is going to be in your handwriting, so I need to make it clear to him. I can make it look like your handwriting. Okay, that's fine. But I've I've written a thing, and I've put a thieves can't message into it, and that means that it needs to be written down in a very specific uh, way. You know, you're going to have to teach me, I mean, if I become part of your family. I, I would be happy to teach you. So the way, I think probably the way this process works out is she's going to read this story to Silpha, and as she goes, she's going to tell her, like, which letters to emphasize for the sake of continuity on a podcast episode. I'm just going to read what she wrote and then say what the Thieves' Can't message is. Does that sound... That sounds great. Uh, so the Thieves' Can't message reads, which I did actually embed in this because um, three months without playing got me doing this. <laughs> K, you didn't murder Lady Evans. I am certain. Put that burden down. It was never yours to carry. J. Okay, so this is what she gets Silpha to write. A little girl drew a bird with chalk on the pavement and immediately wished it was a real bird. To her surprise, it emerged from the ground, a giant black raven with bright eyes and glossy feathers. Climb on my back and I'll fly you to the clouds, the raven said. So the little girl climbed on his back and he took her to a fluffy white cloud high in the blue sky. The cloud was glad the little girl came because he had been a lonely cloud. The little girl curled up and went to sleep under the warm sun. When she woke up, everything had changed. Other clouds had closed in and they were big, dark, and gray, billowing and swollen and crackling with lightning. They bullied her cloud until he swelled and darkened and crackled too. Burrow in and sit tight, the cloud whispered to the girl. I have to pretend to be mean while I hide you. The girl did as she was told, burrowing into the very middle and peeking out. The gang of clouds all began to storm, flashing and thundering and flooding the land below. The girl saw the land would be drowned and destroyed if this continued, and her cloud friend with it. So she sent the bird to find help. The raven flew out, and the next day he returned, bringing the sunlight with him. The sunlight caused the rainbow to pierce the dark. Climb onto me, the rainbow said to the little girl. You can slide down my side and reach the ground safely. But the girl shook her head. I can't leave the cloud, she said. He was lonely before I came. If I leave, he'll be lonely again, and also lost among the other storm clouds forever. You'll be lost too if you stay, the rainbow warned. You can come back after the storm clears. If I abandon him now when it's bad, the little girl said, then I won't deserve to come back to him when it's clear again. We, both remem we will both remember how I ran away when I was scared. The storm thrashed with renewed vengeance, blocking out the sun and dissolving the rainbow. The little girl dug her fingers deep into her cloud, holding on tight as he thrashed with the others, tight enough that he couldn't forget she was there. This was irksome to the cloud, as he realized it would be easiest to just give in to the storm and rage until he died. But it was also reassuring, and it gave him a reason to keep pushing forward and to outlast the others. One day the storm would clear, the other clouds blowing themselves out, and he and the little girl could enjoy the warm sunshine once again. Sable, you leave the room. Give me a stealth roll. Stealth? I'm not trying to be stealthy. Okay, then Cora is on your arm almost <laughs> immediately. I think it'll be clear that Sable is not in a mood to be social. Cora appears. Sable is like, there's a almost a sigh of exasperation from her that escapes before she can do anything about it. And then she pulls herself back together and she says, 
Cora, I appreciate your attention, and now is not the time. Roll me persuasion. Persuasion? 16. 16. She takes this very positively and says, okay, well, I will see you in the morning. Okay, great. Cora's in the circle of the land, isn't she? She very much is. Uh, but I don't know that. But none of us know. Well, yeah, I don't even think Silpha knows that. She knows Cora is a magic user and that's it. I'm going looking for Gina. Okie doke. When we were headed upstairs, I was about to describe what I think a scene going on in the dining area might be. I imagine after cleanup and after work is done for the day, the Lunaris know how to party as much as they know how to work hard. So especially since we have company, someone's like shoved the tables aside and somebody's picked up a fiddle or something and there's some kind of impromptu dancing or whatnot going on. It's the bees dancing, In the right? room, yes, exactly. Yep. The yeah. bees butts are all wiggling. Our butts are wiggling, showing where all the flowers are. You head back to the, the dining room. Dessert is cleared. Over half the tables are moved. Half of them are still set up. There's music being played. Katie is playing music. Specifically, she's got her fiddle-like concoction out. She's playing Flight of the Bumblebee. <laughs> Lots of people are dancing. Melise and Gina are sitting at a table still. Okay. Over with Vanessa and Hanzo and Lady Miev and Lord and Lady Mason. Okay. I'm going to walk up to that table and... As politely as I can, which is probably not very politely, just kind of give a nod to the table and turn to Gina and say, Gina, do you do you have a few minutes to talk? So you get the full table's attention when you walk up. When you ask for Gina, she says, yeah, sure, and stands up and walks out the door. Okay, I'm following her. You follow her into the library. It's not like Lord Mentor's library. It's still smaller than House Varathy's library. Okay. A little bigger than a study. It's jammed full of books. And as you look at the bindings as you walk through, it's a lot of it is magic texts. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And Gina will sort of plop down at a couple of chairs. I stay standing. I, I look at the, the books for a minute and steal myself. And then I just say, Gina, is there some mystical reasoning behind the entire Lunari adulthood in this house? keeping some kind of fairy secret that impacts Silpha from her? Is it part of a deal that you can't tell her? Is it some sort of magical gaius? Is there some mystical reason that she can't know? Gina's face doesn't really move. She she doesn't really make any kind of emotional expression. Still want some insight to see if it surprises her that I say anything about it. Sure. DC 16. Yeah, well, that I just got that. You get a sense of deep irritation. Well, I'm deeply irritated, too, so we can just be deeply irritated in the library together. At each other. She says, I don't see why that would be any of your business. In fact, I'm pretty sure your business is keeping this kingdom in wood. Well, that's not my business at all anymore. It's not even right now. I don't know if it's my house. Hmm. But Silpha is my friend, and as my matron very recently told me, we're adults now, and if there is something that is going to impact her life in the near future, I think she needs to know. You don't have to tell me. I mean, I'd like to know, but you don't have to tell me. And even if you did tell me, I wouldn't tell her because it's a fucking secret that her fucking family should tell her. She thinks she has an open, loving relationship with all of you. Do you realize what this is going to do to her? Gina sort of just 
like again her face doesn't really move and then she taps her fingers on the just really quick in rapid succession on her table and then says look sable i appreciate your concern for your friend but family business is family business we've been doing it for a very long time and we will continue to do it without any intervention and frankly i'd hate for you to handle it how you've been handling your tree situation i'm a 16 year old I have a really high wisdom, but I am incredibly pissed right now. And she just brought up an excessively sore point. Well, and she did it on purpose. And she did it on purpose to hurt me. So, I think that's the second thing she said to you. Oh, yeah. Along she, the first lines. thing she was like, oh, the carpenter who thinks she's a bear. Yeah, Aunt Gina does not like people putting on airs. Aunt Gina does not appreciate the nobility. Aunt Gina speaks her mind. Just remember, we're homeless right now, Sable. <laughs> Pick up the thing that is closest to her and lob it Gina's way and say, fuck you, Gina Lunari. Fuck you and your whole family. And sh then she's going to storm out. She gives you kind of a cold stare as you leave. I'm going out to the meditation spot that has been pointed out to me. And when I get out there, I am going to sit for about maybe 20 seconds and then I'm going to scream fuck at the top of my lungs. As our camera pans away from the grove, we see Sable sobbing with quill and paper, alone in a small semicircle of perfectly symmetrical trees. If she were less distracted, she would know she's sitting in the personal grove of the second most powerful member of the Circle of the Land, and heir to the Lunari estate, Cora Lunari. As fields rush by in a flurry of motion in the late of the evening, a perfect circle of stone sits just outside of town, it was not there before. In the center of this circle is Master Wu, arch-druid of the Circle of the Land. Master Wu comes too, and looks around to see a dozen townsfolk, fresh from the fairy wilds, holding makeshift weapons. In their eyes, a mix of terror and anticipation, as they each use a few hours of the service they promised the Fairy Queen. And that is the episode today. Special thanks to Todd Ferguson and My Pet Machine for our tunes, and Julie at Elaborate Flight of Fancy for our logo. You can find them both on Facebook. Don't forget to rate and review our podcast on iTunes. iTunes. It's where things like this get rated. What is this family secret of House Lunari? Find out next time on Carrots and Suffering, a D&D Odyssey. that bell it's got to be you because i'm a horse yeah she'll ring the bell just to be clear sable is a horse for this trip Mm-hmm. okay and jalen rode sable all the way to house lunari that is right <laughs> exciting somehow it felt natural 
<laughs> but we've cleared out a shed, and uh, tomorrow at noon, I'd like you to be there. And that is where you will be our human sacrifice, Silva. <laughs> <laughs> bum, bum, bum. You will become the animating spirit of the golem. Bring, bring your friends. We need three of those. <laughs> oh, lovely. <laughs> ah! <laughs> what he didn't tell you is that the podcast is over as of next episode. Right. <laughs> Apparently Nate's had enough. <laughs>